You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. I'm Ralph McInerney, a professor of philosophy at the University of Notre Dame, uh, where I've taught since 1955, a long time uh, ago. Uh, and I'm going to give a course, a short course, on the topic faith and reason. Uh, there's been much confusion about what Catholic doctrine is. I'm going to be relying on a, a, an encyclical of John Paul II of uh, some 10 years ago now, I guess, uh, called Faith and Reason, Faith and Reason. And in that encyclical, the Pope addresses uh, the time-honored, centuries old, from the earliest days of the church, uh, attitude that uh, the church has towards human uh, reason. Now, <clears throat> we, of course, are living in the third millennium. And you know, you will know, the opening of Charles Dickens' uh, uh, Tale of Two Cities, uh, very familiar uh, sentence. This is, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And of course, whenever that book has been read since it was uh, written a century and a half ago, uh, people would be able to say, that's the time I'm in now. All times, I suppose, could be said to be the best of times and the worst of times. But sometimes they're better than others, and other times they're worse than others. And we, in the third millennium, are just emerging uh, from a, the bloodiest century uh, in the history of mankind where millions and millions of innocent people were slaughtered uh, in the name of ideologies, pagan ideologies, atheistic ideologies, mainly communism and Nazism. It's a dreadful, dreadful picture. And it, it may be that we're, we're not out of that by a long shot yet, that we're, we're in, in very difficult uh, times. We see the continuing breakdown of the fabric of society. Uh, things that just a short time ago in my lifetime uh, were recognized uh, by almost everyone uh, as uh, perversions uh, have now become uh, the law of the land in many uh, places uh, in the world. Abortion and euthanasia, homosexuality, all the agitation for homosexual marriages and so forth. This would have been unthinkable uh, not very long ago. And, of course, uh, terrorism and the rise of Islam. Uh, none of us can regard that with uh, equanimity. Uh, there is a threat here that has existed throughout the history of Europe and has flared up uh, again and again, and uh, uh, it could very well uh, flare up in a far worse way now because uh, in former times, the Islam was outside of Europe. Now Islam is, of course, scattered through Europe. So if, if, a, if, a, um, if war uh, uh, or violence should break out, it's not going to be easy to determine where the sides of it are. This is, this is a very uh, upsetting uh, thing. And much of it, I, I would uh, contend, I'm not going to develop this now, much of these modern evils, which, as I say, are historic, in the sense that you can't match them uh, by appeal to any previous period of history. And it's been in the Orient, it's been in Europe, it's been in uh, Asia, in Russia, and so forth. It's not been confined to one place. But wherever, wherever uh, it has shown up, uh, one can trace it uh, to the abandonment of God, the abandonment of God. And for philosophers, we would take it back, I suppose, to the uh, 17th and 18th century when philosophers began to imagine uh, a society in which men would be totally free because uh, they would have been liberated from religious faith uh, and from uh, uh, the governance of, uh, of princes. Well, we have seen all around us the effects of this effort uh, to build a society without God. Uh, men trying to live together without acknowledging uh, their origin, uh, their creator, and their ultimate uh, destiny. Now, many of the evils of um, uh, modernity, uh, could a philosopher might say, uh, are due to the exaltation of reason. Huh? 
And since the remedy uh, for the ills of modernity, as these courses will, uh, will uh, display, is Christianity, it might seem that there has to be an opposition between uh, the Christian faith uh, and reason. Uh, what I want to summarize in this uh, kind of introductory lecture uh, is uh, the church's position on that, as I say, relying uh, on uh, John Paul II's encyclical. He uses a metaphor at the beginning of that uh, encyclical that man rises, the human spirit rises on two wings uh, to God. And those two wings are faith on the one hand and reason on the other. Uh, the traditional teaching uh, has been that these are complementary. They're not at war with one another. So the question then arises, why is it that the exaltation of reason, uh, if I'm right, uh, led to these uh, uh, historic disasters uh, over the last century uh, and, um, and more? Uh, clearly, uh, there has to be a way of understanding reason correctly uh, in order for it to be compatible uh, with the, uh, with the uh, faith. Uh, what we're guided by in all this, and I'll develop this uh, in the subsequent lecture, is the epistle of St. Paul to the Romans, uh, in which Paul is speaking to the pagans as pagans, and he's reminding them of their misbehavior. Uh, and then he says, these deeds, and sometimes it looks like a menu of what's going on in our own society, these deeds, uh, St. Paul says, are inexcusable. Now we might think, well, look, he's talking with pagans. Uh, he wants them to become Christians, but they're not yet Christians, so why hold them uh, so blame, much at blame or at fault uh, for doing these things? Don't pagans get a free ticket? And Paul is saying, no. They know that these, these deeds are inexcusable. Why? Because the human mind can, from the things that are made, come to knowledge of the invisible things of God. He's talking to pagans when he says that. And that's the opening that uh, we have always uh, seen uh, taken or seized upon by the fathers of the church and by uh, doctors and teachers through the Middle Ages down to our own time, John Paul II uh, in his encyclical. The church celebrates uh, the use of reason correctly understood, not as if it were something opposed, as if the use of reason necessarily led uh, to the loss of faith and the denial of God. That was the claim of many figures in the Enlightenment. <clears throat> what our own tradition indicates to us is that there is no such uh, necessary entailment uh, uh, at all. Now let's, let's go into this thing in terms of the, the, what thing, the relationship between faith and reason. Let's go into it in terms of uh, one of the difficulties uh, that is, has been uh, thrown at religious believers uh, in quite recent times. You know, when Job says, I know that my Redeemer liveth, huh? I know that my Redeemer liveth. Uh, well, of course, believers often and easily refer to the things they believe, the truths they hold on the basis of faith, as things they know uh, to be true. And yet at other times we find it important to distinguish between what it's like to know something and what it's like uh, to believe uh, something. Now one of the criticisms uh, that, uh, as I say recently, in recent uh, times has been leveled against uh, uh, Christian belief, uh, it was stated in this maxim, it's immoral, it's immoral uh, to give your assent to any proposition uh, on insufficient evidence. Huh? That sounds reasonable. That sounds reasonable enough. Uh, but it has, as you as you agree, I think, the smack of the laboratory about it, as if every proposition uh, is uh, like a scientific hypothesis, which must be tested and verified and uh, finally admitted uh, if it passes all these tests. And the suggestion seems to be, it's easy to show how practically ridiculous it would be, uh, that every proposition I hold to be true, I have to rinse through this bath of, uh, of verification and, uh, and, and so forth. Uh, in, in answer to that, uh, one way of kind of shaking things loose uh, is to uh, 
uh, think of someone asking, if you, know, if you know where you were born, huh? And you say, of course I knew where I was born. I was born in Minneapolis. Huh? You go up there and see the bronze plaque. No, I was born in Minneapolis. And he says, how do you know that? Well, my folks told me that. Your folks, huh? How do you know they're telling you the truth? And you say, well, you say, I'll verify it. Huh? So you go up to Minneapolis, go to the courthouse, ask for the record. You ah, baby boy McInerney, February 24th. I knew it. And your skeptical friend is saying, yeah, but who introduced that? Didn't your aunt used to work in a in the courthouse, I mean. It's, so you, you can see the kind of, of skepticism that could be uh, <coughs> level at even so ordinary a remark as that, uh, that you know where you uh, were born and you know who your parents are. Uh, uh, if that's not a scientific hypothesis that you verified, and it would perhaps turn out to be true that you really couldn't verify it in that uh, fixed, uh, fixed way. Uh, how do I know that Santiago, Chile is down there? Huh? Even if I've seen it, I'm not looking at it now, how do I know that it didn't blow away or it wasn't a mirage or something? How do I know that the next room that I can't see now is there? Uh, how do I know that I can take the word of others? Huh? Uh, you can see if you, if you start getting skeptical about things like this uh, and insist that it is immoral to give your assent to any proposition except on the basis of, of, uh, of uh, evidence uh, of an overwhelming kind, 99% at least of what we say and act on would be immoral. It would be immoral to act in these propositions. Now, as Cardinal Newman suggested when he was confronted with this in the 19th century, it's not a matter of saying we're going to celebrate being unreasonable 99% of the time and confine reasonable to mean only those cases where we have something like scientific verification. No, what, what Newman suggests is no, we're going to expand the notion of what reasonable means. Newman put it this way, it's unreasonable to expect that reasonable should always mean exactly the same thing. It's reasonable to take your parents' word uh, for where you were uh, born. It's reasonable uh, to assume that Santiago, Chile is down there. You don't have to go take a look at it before you mail a letter to it. Uh, you wouldn't have to mail the letter. Uh, it's reasonable to do these things. Most of our lives are based on this kind of trust. Uh, St. Augustine said that human life would be impossible uh, without our being able to rely on the word of one, of one another. Sometimes we're deceived, of course. That's, that's part of it. But we can't get around that. And so I'll say, I'll never again uh, take anyone's word for anything that I haven't seen uh, for uh, myself. Now, there is, a, there is a difference between, let's say, this kind of trust, human trust, are taking, uh, say, our Uncle Fulvio tells us that Santiago is down there, and we figure He's never misled me before, I'll, I'll take his word for it. Well, you could go uh, to Santiago yourself, of course, uh, but would it be the same Santiago that your Uncle Fulvio uh, talked about? Uh, scientists, we could say, uh, hold the bulk of what they hold to be true, even in their own small discipline. They hold this on the base, basis of trusting their colleagues. Uh, you can imagine yourself talking with a microbiologist and he's saying, nowadays we know blah, 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 and a whole list of things that we now have achieved knowledge of in microbiology. We? And you ask him, did you run all these experiments? And he said, no. He points to all the journals on his shelf and says, the stuff is in there. That's, where I, that's why I know we know it. But you say, you don't know it. You're just taking the word of the uh, editor or the author of the, well, what the scientists could say, well, I couldn't verify all of those uh, findings, but I could verify any of them. I could verify any of them. So that is, that is a human trust of a kind that is merely an expedient. It can be replaced uh, by, by knowledge. Other instances of, of human belief are permanent. Now, you just can't get around them. Uh, you love your wife, she loves you. You take her word, she takes yours. There's no way of getting around that. You will be faithful to her. That's a promise. It's not, a, it's, 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 it's not just a prediction that something's going to happen you have nothing to do with. It's not a forecast of something that is inevitable. It's something you're going to bring about. That kind of, of uh, 
sharing of trust uh, is at the heart of most of our lives and certainly at the heart of uh, any kind of uh, any kind of society so there are truths that can be accepted on trust and that trust can be replaced by knowledge there are truths that are accepted on trust and that's a fairly permanent thing and then there are the truths of faith huh? The truths of faith, the belief in the trinity of persons in one God, the belief in the incarnate God in Jesus, uh, the belief in the resurrection of the dead. And so if you think of the creed and the articles uh, of the creed, these are things that we believe, we hold to be true, we take God's word for it, and as long as we live, that's going to be the only way uh, that we can firmly hold uh, those propositions uh, to be true. Well, that's, that's a kind of menu of, of what I uh, will be doing. Now, the structure of these little courses, as I uh, should have pointed out earlier, we first of all give these uh, introductory uh, talks, which are more or less of an overview, a forecast, of what is in written lessons, huh? uh, which will be downloadable uh, for those who uh, want to take these courses from our uh, website. Uh, International Catholic University. Uh, <clears throat> those who uh, follow the course, these are uh, uh, basic, uh, they're easily uh, followed, but they, they make demands and, uh, and you wouldn't be uh, uh, taking the time to take the course if it didn't make uh, some demands on you. But they're user friendly, I think. You'll find that uh, you can, uh, uh, whatever your background, uh, you'll be able to catch hold of uh, what we're trying to do uh, in these uh, in these particular courses. Now, the the notion that that the um, church is interested uh, and has been from the beginning uh, in this relationship between what human beings can learn about themselves, about the world, and about God uh, without any help from revelation. Huh? Uh, and on the one hand, and in what, of course, uh, principally the church is interested in what God has told us about himself. Huh? But the church has always been interested uh, in what human beings can come to know about themselves, the world, uh, and God uh, without the aid of revelation. Huh? And the, the reason uh, for that, well, there, there, there are many reasons, but nowadays uh, I'm, I've often been struck by this in reading John Paul II's uh, encyclical Faith and Reason. You'd think when, when the Pope writes a letter, the main thing he's interested in, and maybe only, the only thing he'd be interested in is defending the faith against, uh, uh, against skeptics or against criticisms made directly of the faith. And you can find church documents that, uh, that look pretty much that way. But in more recent years, something has happened. It's not only the case that we find the faith uh, defended uh, in these uh, ecclesiastical documents, but reason as well, reason as well. Uh, I started with difficulties that uh, believers sometimes face from people who seem to have a great deal of trust in reason. That goes back a ways, that example that I use, that it's immoral to uh, accept any proposition except on the basis of overwhelming evidence. That goes back maybe 50 years or so. Nowadays, uh, one of the troubling features of uh, philosophy, my discipline, is that we have a lot of people who have lost faith in the ability of reason to know the world, to know anything for sure about the world. Uh, there are many versions of this, but it's a kind of massive uh, skepticism uh, that permeates the theory of knowledge of, uh, of many people, that anything I say about the world is really a projection uh, from my mind onto who knows what. Huh? But I'm not seeing what's really there. I'm interpreting it. Huh? And that's, that's all we really do. And how our interpretations then, which conflict, can be put together uh, is an uh, is interesting question. But imagine that, that uh, there are people who uh, draw a salary uh, for teaching uh, uh, philosophy and are fairly 
prestige, have a lot of prestige in the field. And they are, in effect, saying the human mind is incapable of achieving truth. Huh? Well, the church can't sit still for that. Huh? And one reason is, as we'll be developing in the next uh, half hour, uh, one reason for that is that the faith doesn't, isn't derived from what we can know by reason alone, but it depends on it in ways that I'll, I'll want to develop. If it were really the case that we can't know anything about the world, just to bring it into a focus, how could we understand, say, the parables of Jesus? I mean, he's talking about things in the world uh, and uh, ordinary events, familiar events, as if everyone who is listening to him understands and knows those things. And then on the basis of that knowledge, with grace, they can go beyond uh, that understanding, say, of the parable of the prodigal son, and they see, ah, that is the relation of God to his creatures. That's the point of the parable. But Christ couldn't teach in that way, and we're told that uh, that's the only way he did teach, uh, except to his uh, inner circle. Um, he couldn't do that unless it was possible for the human mind uh, to know the world and themselves and to use that as a springboard uh, for the further truths uh, that Jesus wanted to reveal to them. It's not, of course, surprising that the uh, church would be defending reason uh, as well as uh, faith because it is, it's an indirect way of defending uh, faith itself, as I uh, suggest with that example uh, of the uh, parables. But if we go uh, into uh, our understanding of what a human being is, uh, the nature uh, of uh, man as compared to anything else in this cosmos of ours, man alone is made in the image of his creator. Meaning what? That he has a mind and a will. Uh, he's made to know and love God. That's the point of, uh, of human existence. And that's why it's such a tragedy when reason is abused and used uh, against itself and against that end, against that uh, aim. And that is, uh, that is something that, uh, uh, of course, the church would uh, be uh, interested in, uh, if, uh, if only on its own terms. But, of course, it, it has its uh, impact on how we understand uh, those truths that we accept on the authority of God revealing, and which throughout this life uh, we will accept only uh, on the basis of uh, that trust in God. Uh, Kierkegaard, the great Lutheran theologian, uh, put it this way, that the only difference uh, between the simple man and the wise man with respect to the truths of Christianity is that the simple man doesn't understand them and the wise man understands that he doesn't understand them. Huh? So it's a kind of Socratic uh, ignorance, you might say. Uh, there's a lot that more that, that has to be said and that we will pointing to, be pointing to uh, in the next half hour and in the lessons that uh, accompany uh, these uh, introductory uh, things. Uh, what I would want to stress uh, is the, again, the non-hostility of the faith towards reason or vice versa. Uh, those two wings that John Paul II talked about uh, are meant uh, to be complementary uh, and, and permit a, a balanced uh, uh, ascension. Uh, a balanced, uh, a balanced uh, flight. So we are, <coughs> we're, we're talking about things which uh, are not in one sense central to the Christian message, uh, but in another sense are extremely important uh, for it. This is one reason why uh, people like myself have spent a long lifetime uh, teaching philosophy in a Catholic university. Uh, the role of philosophy, the role of uh, this pursuit uh, and examination of what we can know uh, for sure, uh, using our mind uh, or with degrees of, uh, of uh, certainty, uh, this is a very important uh, complement uh, to those who uh, in my university uh, teach theology. Huh? And we'll be saying something in the next half hour and certainly in the lessons that accompany this uh, introductory uh, lecture, these introductory lectures, we'll be saying a lot more about what we understand by, on the one hand, philosophy and on the other hand, uh, theology. So, faith and reason. 
Uh, we're going to look at the uh, uh, text of St. Paul a little more closely and the implications of that text uh, and uh, what has been made of it uh, by uh, the great uh, doctors of, uh, of the Christian faith over, over the centuries and uh, try to uh, express uh, what they have had to say uh, in uh, terms of that will be relevant for the situation in, in, which we, in which we find ourselves. What we want to avoid at all costs is the idea that the faith is some kind of vacation uh, from reason or being reasonable. But it's reasonable in a very different way. Think of Cardinal Newman again. Uh, believing is reasonable. Uh, divine faith is reasonable in a way very different, of course, from the way in which being a microbiologist uh, is being reasonable or trusting your wife is being reasonable. Uh, it's very different from those kinds of reasonableness. And that was Newman's point. We don't want to uh, try to pin that term down to one only use. We're not inventing these other uses, of course. We're just noticing uh, how they, too, occur in ordinary uh, language of, uh, of human beings. We want to pull those out and examine them. And sometimes the use that has been uh, obscured and almost uh, forgotten is the use that is most important most of the time uh, and uh, which uh, guarantees that uh, even uh, people like ourselves can lead a reasonable life, but more importantly, uh, that we have this conviction that uh, our belief in God, our belief in the truths that have been revealed is a reasonable act. Huh? Well, that's, uh, that's about what I wanted to do in this first half hour, uh, introduce the topic of faith and reason, make special reference uh, to the uh, encyclical of that title. Uh, if you take this course uh, from the website, uh, that's one of the texts that you'll be wanting to read, but of course you don't have to take the course in order to uh, read that papal encyclical. Uh, in the written material, I, I tell you how you can find uh, the materials that I refer to on the web and download them uh, uh, at, uh, at no cost. So that's our preliminary presentation of the topic of uh, faith and reason, and uh, next time uh, I'll be going on to something a little bit more tied down to the scriptural passage in the epistle to the Romans that I've already mentioned. In the first lecture, uh, I said some very general things uh, about faith and reason uh, based on John Paul II's encyclical uh, of that uh, title. Uh, earlier as well, I mentioned a a uh, fundamental scriptural passage uh, when this uh, subject comes up of the relationship between faith and reason, knowing something and believing something, uh, namely the opening chapter of Paul's epistle uh, to the Romans, uh, 1920 verses, uh, in which uh, St. Paul, after chiding the Romans uh, for their misbehavior, the pagan Romans for their misbehavior, uh, he then says that this behavior is inexcusable. Huh? And uh, then he explains why he is making that judgment. That is, they get no excuse. Uh, there's no excuse for them acting in that way. Why? Because Paul says man can, pagan Romans can, from the things, and you too, Man can, from the things that are made, the world around us, come to knowledge of the invisible things of God. Now, from time immemorial, uh, that has been taken uh, as uh, an indication that uh, Paul is acknowledging that the human mind is capable of rising to knowledge of God. And of course, he's indicating that that has moral implications as well. That's the point of the passage. Because God exists, you shouldn't act that way. Because you're the creatures of God, you should not be uh, acting in the way that he has um, re reviewed uh, for them. Now, anyone, uh, certainly from early times on to uh, contemporary times, uh, who reads that passage and uh, thinks of... Uh, uh, the situation in which Paul finds himself is going to have his mind drawn uh, to uh, the achievements uh, of ancient philosophy, uh, the golden age 
of Greek philosophy was the fourth century BC, when we had a sequence of uh, philosophers, thinkers, uh, pursuers of truth uh, in Athens, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. It was the best of times as far as philosophy uh, went. And those men, uh, the positive achievements of those men, uh, continue to influence uh, those who uh, study uh, philosophy. And they had a tremendous, Aristotle particularly, had a tremendous influence uh, during the Middle Ages on Thomas Aquinas, uh, for, uh, for example. Uh, Plato, not so much, by the sheer accident uh, that uh, most of the medievals uh, were not uh, able to read Greek. And until these texts were translated into Latin, they weren't going to be uh, available to them. Aristotle was translated uh, into uh, Latin much sooner and in uh, almost completion uh, than, uh, than Plato. And those who studied, Christian believers who studied uh, Aristotle and later Plato and looked at uh, their arguments uh, on behalf of such things as the immortality of the soul, death is not the end for a human being, uh, and their arguments for uh, the, uh, the existence of God. Huh? Uh, these were uh, brooded over and studied and commented on throughout the centuries that philosophy has uh, uh, captured the minds and imaginations uh, of men. Aristotle was a Macedonian uh, who had come to Athens to study with, uh, with Plato. Uh, he was a pagan. He was a pagan in the sense that he was neither a Jew nor a Christian. Uh, couldn't have been a Christian in the uh, uh, 4th century BC. Uh, and he had never heard of the revealed uh, religion of uh, Christianity. Uh, later in, uh, in the 4th century, when Augustine is considering uh, the way in which philosophers were able to uh, say such uh, uh, and prove, argue for such marvelous uh, truths uh, about God and the nature of God. Uh, he toyed for a long time with the idea that they must have gotten hold of the Jewish Bible, and they were they were relying on that. But finally, uh, late uh, uh, he abandoned that and said, "There's just no way in which." Uh, uh, I can continue to maintain that Plato had contact uh, with, uh, with Jewish thought. So what remained? That here's Plato and Aristotle without any help uh, from Revelation uh, coming to knowledge uh, of, uh, of God. And uh, that, uh, that's the glory uh, for them of, uh, of, the, of the pursuit of truth. It's the point in telos, the end, the goal of philosophizing to arrive at such knowledge as the human mind is capable of knowledge of God. And those arguments, you, you, you may know some of them, they sound, they're often given in kind of telegraphic form, a couple of sentences, uh, whatever is moved is moved by another. It's impossible to have an infinite series of moved movers. Therefore, uh, there must be an unmoved mover, a first unmoved mover, and that's God as Thomas will add when he uh, recapitulates that proof. And he gives it in very short form uh, at the beginning of his Summa uh, Theologiae. But to understand that proof and to know that the premises are true uh, requires a lot of work uh, in, um, uh, and not just understanding uh, three sentences. But that is the, that is the, um, the glory, as I say, and the, and the goal uh, of uh, philosophizing as understood by Plato and Aristotle. This is what our mind was made for. This is what, this is what we want to focus on, the really real, uh, as, uh, as uh, Plato uh, put it. Now, when we crank forward to uh, John Paul II's uh, Faith and, and Reason, uh, you will find him uh, saying, well, you know, I'm going to talk about philosophy. And it's as if he, he's trying to um, uh, reassure his reader, don't get nervous, I'm going to talk about philosophy. And then he says what he means by philosophy. And he does it in a way that is meant to assure any reader uh, that he's been doing it already. He's been, he's been engaged in philosophy. Why? Because philosophy can be summed up, philosophizing, uh, the Pope says, can be summed up in the, the great questions, what does it all mean? Huh? Why are we here? 
what is right and what is wrong? Uh, is death the end? What can we hope for? Those are big questions, and they're not too big for anybody. You hear them talk uh, uh, down at McDonald's, young men and women uh, uh, talk about them and, uh, and uh, uh, consider them, uh, old people uh, uh, think about them. What's it all mean? Uh, we can't help but ask those questions. And the Pope says, you're doing philosophy, uh, in effect, when you ask those questions. Now, anyone who teaches introductory philosophy perhaps begins in that way. Uh, to reassure the students that they've already been engaged in asking the kinds of questions that are going to be uh, dealt with in the, uh, in the course. But the Pope goes beyond that in, in uh, Faith and Reason, uh, and he says it's not just that there are certain questions uh, that sooner or later every human being is going to pose. There are answers to those questions which are commonly held answers to the question, what does it all mean? Does God exist? What's the difference between good and evil? Is there a common uh, agreement uh, on those matters? Uh, the Pope says there is, but it's implicit. He calls it, it's as if we've come upon uh, an implicit philosophy or answers to those questions which implicitly all human beings hold. And it can be shown that that's, that's a tenable position. You can show that indeed, uh, that lurking uh, in um, just about anyone's attitude uh, towards the world and statements about the world and about himself, lurking uh, in uh, those, uh, uh, that judgment, his personal philosophy, will be a recognition uh, of, of these truths, implicit, even uh, in cases where the surface philosophy is denying uh, those truths. But that's a long story, and it's uh, what keeps philosophers employed, uh, showing that other philosophers are, uh, are wrong. The, uh, the church is interested in philosophy in that classical sense, because in that classical sense, philosophy is not just word games. It's not uh, studying what the scientist does or uh, what the artist does and so with those things too, but it's aimed at it's aimed at such knowledge as the human mind, unaided by revelation, can come to of God the Creator. So it is, it's, a, uh, it's a, uh, uh, an important uh, complement uh, to the kind of knowledge that we have of God thanks to uh, revelation. Thomas Aquinas uh, put it this way uh, in terms of the relationship between philosophical uh, knowledge and uh, revelation that there are two kinds of truths about God. Uh, there are those truths about God that the philosophers uh, arrived uh, at, that there is a God, uh, that there is only one God, that God is the maker of all else that God is intelligent. And so it, the list usually just says, etc. He doesn't intend to give a complete uh, list, but you can see already there are some very important uh, things that are uh, attributed to philosophers as knowledge that they gain uh, as a result of their studies using, using their mind as it was meant to be used. Huh? There's that kind of truth then. And what, how does the philosopher prove something? He finally has to appeal to what everybody knows, what everybody knows. If he can't bring uh, a theory that uh, originally would sound to us maybe pretty bizarre, if he can't uh, remove our uh, sense of strangeness by showing that it's derivable ultimately from things that nobody would deny, then he loses, huh? he loses, we don't. Uh, if he can't do that, he's not doing his job. So the philosophical discourse is always ultimately based on truths which are known by every human person. And the whole point of argument is to reduce, to analyze uh, truths back into uh, those basic uh, axiomatic and easily grasped self-evident uh, truths. And as I say, if the philosopher can't do that, uh, he's failed at his job. And we can't just sign on and say, well, I'll learn how to talk that way myself. You haven't proved anything to me, but it sounds kind of fancy. Uh, that, that wouldn't be a serious way of agreeing with a philosopher or adopting uh, a philosophy. That's one kind of truth Thomas says about God. 
the other kind of truth is those truths about God which we would never, no human being would have had any inkling of if they hadn't been revealed to us by God himself in Scripture, in Jesus. Without that, these truths would, would just not occur to us, that there are three persons in one divine nature, that there are two natures in the person of Christ, human nature and a divine nature, that death is not the end, and then not just in the sense that philosophers held that the soul is, is such that it's not going to cease to be, but what believers believe, what we believe, is that ultimately soul and body will be reunited. That the promise of the resurrection uh, in uh, Christ's own resurrection, that triumph over death, means all of us now will eventually be reunited and be a complete human person that requires both a body and a soul. That would never enter uh, into uh, the minds of a, of a philosopher it did into some myths, of course, uh, the transmigration of souls and so forth. But that's very different uh, from, uh, from uh, res uh, resurrection. Uh, it kind of makes the soul a <clears throat> entity all by itself that just takes up habitation in different uh, bodies over time. But uh, if you think about it, that's not at all. Uh, similar or analogous even to the resurrection. But I mention now just those truths because they, they jump out at us. We're familiar with them. And of course, we say the, we bless ourselves and remind ourselves of the Trinity. Uh, we uh, uh, are constantly aware of the fact that when we're reading the New Testament, when we read what Jesus says, it's not just a wise man that we're listening to. This is the Son of God. Huh? This is the way, the truth, and the life. So we attend to him uh, in, in, in a way that acknowledges that he is uh, both human and, uh, and divine. And of course, we live in the hope uh, of the uh, resurrection. When we mourn our dead, it's, uh, we do not mourn as those without hope, uh, as uh, St. Paul said. Why? Because we know that uh, eventually uh, there soul of the departed will be uh, reunited with, uh, with its body. Okay. Those three truths and of the many that have been revealed, we just take those and we can contrast them uh, with the truths that are ascribed to the, uh, about God that are ascribed to the philosopher, that God exists. Well, of course, uh, of course the, uh, uh, the believer believes that, but he believes God exists as three persons. Huh? God exists in Jesus. Huh? That's uh, a lot more than, uh, than what the philosopher would say, isn't it? Uh, that um, there's only one God. Of course, there's one divine nature, uh, uh, but there are three persons uh, uh, in that, uh, in that uh, nature. That would not occur to a philosopher. So these look like very different kinds of truth about God. And that's, uh, we would say that's why Thomas says, duplex as veritas churca deum. There are two kinds of truth uh, about, uh, about God. Now, we can ask ourselves, does this mean that we just end up with two baskets, so to speak, of uh, truths about God, uh, those that philosophers can achieve and you and I just using our minds and following their arguments or, or devising arguments of our own uh, that are equally uh, sound uh, that we could arrive at, and on the other hand, totally different from them, totally divorced from them, would be the truths of revelation, huh? Well, a moment's reflection, uh, well, two moments, reflection would indicate to us that that won't work. They're not, they're not separated like that. Why? Because when you think about it, the truths that the philosopher comes to know are embedded in the truths that we as believers believe. Yeah? That there's only one God is, of course, uh, embedded in uh, the very opening phrase of the, uh, of the, of the creed uh, that... Uh, 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 well, uh, whatever the philosopher can come to know about God, we say it's not lying over here separate, but we would find any believer already believes that. He implicitly believes that. He's not saying, gee, I, I, I think there are three persons and one God, but I wonder if God exists. Huh? I mean, that, that would be impossible. So we're faced, and Thomas uh, got kind of excited about this, uh, insofar as he got excited, uh, the notion that these philosophical truths, 
naturally knowable truths about God uh, are all part of the package, so to speak, of revelation, part of the package of, uh, of revelation. So from that, one might say, and, and it was said by some of the early fathers, who needs philosophy? Huh? Who needs this approach of reason, unaided reason, uh, to, uh, to, to God when we've got it all. And some of the fathers made that point that what the ancient philosophers sought so laboriously over their long lives is now in the possession of the simplest of human beings immediately upon uh, embracing uh, the faith. Huh? So it might seem that philosophy has been made obsolete uh, by, this, uh, by this fact. And if we think that, it's, uh, I think, I think uh, anyone is going to say, well, who needs philosophy, for heaven's sakes? They've got it all here. Uh, and uh, uh, I, don't, I don't have to go uh, looking through those very difficult uh, arguments and uh, arriving at truths that are already hold on the basis of, uh, uh, of the faith. Well, against that uh, impulse, uh, so to think, uh, we have the long tradition, again, of the church's interest in these philosophical efforts uh, to know and to say things about God. Huh? Why? Huh? Well, what Thomas did when he noticed that you had these two kinds of truths about God included in, so to speak, the package of revelation, he gave a label uh, to to. Uh, the two kinds of truth. And he said, those truths uh, that are held on the basis of philosophical arguments, we're going to call them preambles of faith. Huh? And those truths which uh, can only be held on the basis of uh, reason, uh, we're on faith, we're going to call those the mysteries, the mysteries of, uh, of faith. So then the question arises, in, in this terminology, what is the relationship between what Thomas calls preambles of faith and the mysteries of faith? It's another way of saying, what's the relationship between uh, philosophical truths about God and, and um, divinely revealed truths about God or truths that could only be held on the basis of uh, divine uh, revelation? Uh, the, the answer to that is, uh, is, is, is uh, not uh, at all uh, complicated in one sense. In another sense, uh, uh, is the sort of task that keeps people like myself busy, uh, as they say, throughout a, 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 long, a long life. But a couple of things we want to be uh, very uh, clear about uh, is this. When Thomas calls the truths about God that philosophers uh, or anyone just using his mind can come to about God, uh, when he calls those preambles, we shouldn't think that by that he means that you can derive the mysteries from those preambles, that they're premises from which you can conclude that since we know God exists, we can conclude that uh, there's a trinity of person. Uh, that isn't what preambles uh, means at all. Uh, it means rather that uh, it captures the notion of they're embedded, they're at the base of, included in uh, the mysteries uh, of, uh, uh, of faith. Now, from the point of view uh, of one who has accepted uh, uh, divine revelation, uh, has received the grace of faith, uh, and who is thinking about these matters, uh, he is going to, uh, if he's St. Thomas Aquinas, he's going to come up with this kind of argument to show why it is reasonable for us to accept truths. Many Protestants will reject uh, the notion of a philosophical knowledge of God precisely because uh, they fear that it's trying to establish on the basis of just human reason the truths of faith. Uh, and they're right to have that fear. If that's what was going on uh, by acknowledging that there is such a thing as philosophical uh, knowledge of God, philosophical theology, uh, as it's uh, often called, uh, that if it were the case that by acknowledging that we were kind of smudging the difference between believing on the one hand and knowing uh, on the other, then uh, there would be uh, legitimate 
reason uh, to reject. But since that is not entailed, uh, one is not saying uh, that uh, one who has achieved philosophically these few truths about God uh, will deduce from those uh, the mysteries of, of Christianity. So it would be it would be a reason for alarm if uh, a, a Christian believer thought another Christian believer was saying we're going to be able on the basis of these natural arguments that any human being could follow we're going to be able to establish the basic truths of Christianity the mysteries of Christianity of course he'd be alarmed what would be the point of faith uh, if it were just an expedient in this life so that smart people uh, could uh, advance uh, beyond uh, the need to believe and say oh I used to believe the Trinity but now I've got this great argument for it and I know it now uh, that's the kind of thing that uh, uh, Kierkegaard, whom I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, thought he found in uh, Hegel, uh, the famous uh, German philosopher uh, who held that uh, philosophy is the truth of religion. Yeah? Uh, that is not the implication, the traditional implication uh, of the notion of preambles of faith. So what is its importance? What is its importance? It's not as if uh, if, you, if you establish these truths, philosophical truths about God, then you can deduce the mysteries of the faith. Well, you could say that removes an obstacle to belief. I mean, if you didn't think there was a God at all, it'd be quite a jump into uh, accepting uh, God as uh, revealed in Christ. Uh, but if you already hold there is a God, and it's a matter of identifying, huh? thanks to faith, uh, that God with uh, uh, the God that uh, Jesus uh, uh, proclaimed. So it might play that kind of removing the obstacle role, but it's not going to play the role of premises from which we deduce uh, the truths of faith. So what is its importance? This, I think. From the point of view of the believer, uh, he can look at what I've called the package of revelation. And he sees and acknowledges such truths as the Trinity and the Incarnation and the Resurrection, the forgiveness of sins, and so forth. Uh, he acknowledges those not because he has deduced them from something that he and everybody else knows, but because God said so. Huh? He's accepting them on, in trust on the word of God for their truth. And with the promise, of course, that one day uh, he will see even as he's seen and faith and hope will pass away and only charity will remain. But in this life, uh, as long as we live, faith is the only basis on which we can hold uh, what Thomas calls the mysteries uh, of the faith. But the believer notices uh, that also included in the package of Revelation are the implicitly are these truths that philosophers have, have come to know. And from that, the believer, now this is not a motive for belief, this is not something that um, moves one into the faith, but looking at it through the eyes of the faith, he's able to conclude that it is reasonable to accept as true the mysteries which he cannot in this life comprehend or understand to be true. And the basis for that uh, assurance for the believer is that some of the things that God has revealed, the preamble, can be known to be true. And if they can be known to be true, they are intelligible. And that is, for the believer, an assurance uh, that the, all the things that God has revealed are intelligible. This argument that I'm suggesting is, uh, we might call it an argument by sampling. Uh, you know, when a gondola of grain comes into, uh, uh, into a mill, into an elevator, uh, there are people there who push pipes uh, into the gondola, the car of grain, and they pull it out, and that sample stands for the whole car. They take several samples, but they, they grade the grain uh, in that car on the basis of that sample. The argument I'm suggesting is something like that. But it is not notice, it is not an argument which is meant to uh, establish believing, but it is something in an argument that a believer uh, would fashion to assure himself uh, that uh, uh, though he cannot see it now, it's reasonable for him to accept uh, all of these uh, uh, mysteries of faith. Uh, because the faith is not an invitation, of course, to accept funny statements. Huh? 
it's not an invitation to accept uh, contradictory uh, uh, truths. It's uh, an invitation to accept the truth itself. The object of faith, as St. Thomas insists in his Summa, is the truth, the truth that God is. So the idea that our minds are locking into nonsense or absurdities when we believe, uh, Thomas would take to be uh, impious. But it does those excessive statements that go, some of them way back to patristic times, are understandable when we realize that on reflection, we have to acknowledge that uh, faith is a testing. We see now through a glass darkly. Huh? But then the promise is uh, face uh, to faith. Now, we wouldn't want to end uh, this little intro uh, with the suggestion that <clears throat> the point of faith is to give us uh, uh, things to puzzle over. Uh, it's first of all addressed to us uh, as uh, an invitation of a way to live. Huh? Uh, our acceptance of it is not just cerebral. But we have minds, we have minds. And some believers, at least, uh, for their sins, uh, must uh, uh, use their minds in this somewhat uh, cerebral way and uh, ponder, ponder uh, the truths that God has uh, revealed and compare them with things that human beings know. This is one of the great tasks, one of the tasks of the, uh, the theologian, the man who starts out as from his premises with truths that God has revealed, consequently truths that only a believer uh, would hold. And then from those, he fashions arguments which will move the mind of another believer. But he wouldn't expect, shouldn't expect, that such arguments as he devises would bring someone from non-belief to belief. Uh, the theologian, that's, that's, that's one of his uh, uh, noble uh, uh, tasks. In St. Thomas Aquinas, who is the patron, uh, not only of uh, our International Catholic University, but of many uh, uh, institutions of higher learning in this country and around the world, uh, was both a philosopher uh, and a theologian. And primarily a theologian, of course, that being the more important uh, task. Uh, but some of us uh, specialize a bit. We do just uh, philosophy and kind of look into theology the way Moses looked at the promised land <laughs> and uh, kind of envy uh, the people uh, who, are, who are engaged in it. Uh, a final thing that might occur to you uh, is this. Why do you say uh, that there isn't any proof for uh, revealed truths. What about the miracles? Huh? What was the point of the miracles if it wasn't meant to convince uh, the uh, witnesses of those miracles that Christ was human and divine? So they would have known it, wouldn't they, on the basis of those miracles, so they wouldn't have to believe that Christ was human and divine. Is there any point in this life where one could say that one knows what later generations uh, in the early uh, century, is there any way that one could say they knew and we have to believe? Well, and we'd think of St. Thomas the Apostle, not be having been uh, with the other apostles when the risen Christ appeared, he's skeptical. He right? said, I won't, I won't believe that until I see the wounds. And uh, so Jesus shows up when Thomas is there. Huh? And Thomas immediately says, my Lord and my God. Huh? He doesn't do any testing at all. Uh, and Jesus says, remember that, well, blessed are those who uh, believe who have not seen. Huh? And so the suggestion is Thomas is seeing. Well, he sees the resurrected body of Christ. Does that mean he knows uh, in, in, in a strong sense uh, that uh, the resurrection is occurred? This is a vast topic. Uh, but I wanted, I wanted to, uh, to mention it to indicate that that, like the kind of argument, uh, uh, the appeal to miracles, like the argument that I suggested could be devised uh, from the package of Revelation, uh, is good. It's a, it's a good argument for believers. But a lot of people, remember, witness those miracles. Think of all the people who watched Lazarus come forth from the tomb. Did they all believe in Jesus? Huh? So the miracle, uh, just the wondrous acts that, that Christ performed, didn't have for all the automatic uh, response of accepting Christ as God. That means that those who accepted him did so on the basis of faith, the graces of faith, and not on the basis of experiential uh, knowledge. 
The case of Thomas the Doubter, uh, Thomas Didymus, as he's been called over the century, uh, doesn't uh, conflict uh, with that, uh, uh, with that uh, 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 truth, that no believer uh, in this life has known the truths of faith. Other problems that will arise, St. Paul is caught up into uh, the heavens and is given a vision. Does that mean he no longer has to believe? These are, these are um, uh, problems that uh, 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 we, can, we can pursue, but they do not, they do not uh, change the fact that in this life, uh, for us, belief is, so to speak, terminal. Uh, throughout our lives, the only way we can hold these truths that uh, God has revealed, the mysteries, uh, is by reliance on uh, the divine faith, the grace of faith that we've been given, and accept these as the word of God. The word both in the sense of the uh, words of the scripture and the word that uh, Jesus himself had, uh, who of course uh, remains among us. Uh, in, the, uh, in the Eucharist and uh, remains, his grace remains available to us in the sacraments uh, of the church. So he, stay, he, he continues to be Emmanuel. So when we're talking about faith and belief, we're not referring ourselves back to distant historical events. We're talking about the presence of God among us uh, and uh, as he will be in the church uh, till uh, the end of time. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.